Hey, what's up, guys? I am Mark. I am here with my friends, Nick and Ryan, and we are Bible Dingers. And today we've got another interview for you guys. Uh, we've been going over Romans, and we had interviews from guys talking about Calvinism, Arminianism, and now we're going to be looking at a view that is kind of in between those two. So, Nick, you want to take it away? Sure. We are interviewing Dr. Layton Flowers, and he is known for a view called Provisionism and was named a Director of Evangelism and Apologetics for Texas Baptists in 2018. In addition to preaching on a wide range of biblical subjects, Layton regularly travels to churches of all sizes to conduct seminars that specialize on evangelism and apologetics. He has participated in debates with leading apologists and led training conferences for the annual convention, conclave, apologetic conferences, and the SBC annual convention. Previously, he served as the Director of Youth Evangelism for Texas Baptist for 13 years. In this position, he oversaw the statewide youth leadership training camp called Super Summer, and the youth evangelism conferences, impacting thousands of teenagers with evangelistic messages, missions, mobilization, and discipleship training. Layton has also assisted in the oversight of such ministries as See You at the Pole, a worldwide prayer movement began by his father, Chuck Flowers, which is impacting people not only in Texas, but all around the world. Layton earned a bachelor's degree in applied theology from Hardin-Simmons University in 1997, a Master's of Divinity with Biblical Languages from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in 2000, and completed his doctorate at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary in 2016. Yeah, so uh, Dr. Layton Flowers is really popular on YouTube right now um, with provisionism, this view of salvation, with, and also he has a website, Soteriology 101, in which he breaks all these uh, topics down. And so we wanted to give him an opportunity to speak as well. We didn't just want to present Calvinism and Arminianism. We know this uh, view has a lot of supporters, so we wanted to give them a platform as well. So with that being said, I hope that you guys enjoy this episode of Bible Dingers. aware that, uh, I mean, on the spectrum, a lot of people would put me in the Armenian camp because it's not Calvinism. And so basically some people do that. But uh, so Michael Brown and I and or Brian Abishano, who is the, the president of the Society of Evangelical Armenians, would agree on a lot of, of the major soteriological issues. We would just have some different nuances in how we might describe some of those things. I believe, yeah. So I was actually speaking with uh, Dr. Brown a little bit last week because he was, I think, unsure about where you guys differed. And I, I believe I was integral to your views as well as Arminians' traditional views, which would be that I believe Arminians traditionally believe in total inability and you do not. Correct. Um, and then I believe 
Armenians also believe you can lose your salvation and you believe that you cannot lose your salvation. Um, That's a simple, simple way of putting it, but yes. Yeah. So I, I, we'll get into that. (laughs) We will get into that, but that was sort of my, my thought process and, and having you separate from an Arminian. Yeah. um, Kind of the, the T and the P, if you're looking at the tulip, the T and the P were, is where we would possibly differ. And it depends on the Arminian. I mean, even, even some Arminians side with us with regard to perseverance. And so, um, it, and there's a different, vast differences among Armenians on even the T and how it's described. And so, and I can talk, comment on that as well, kind of give some nuance on that. But Cool. So Dr. Flowers, I wanted to, first of all, thank you so much for being on the show. Really respect your work, really respect that everything you've uh, put into this topic specifically. So I wanted to go ahead and jump right into it and ask you what is provisionism or traditionalism? Yeah, traditionalism is not a term that I made up. It was a term that was kind of adopted in in the last 10, 15 years to kind of describe what traditionally Southern Baptists believe with regard to soteriology. Some have referred to it as the whosoever will kind of theology that, that really, when the Southern Baptists grew and, you know, busted out of the seams as the largest, uh, you know, Protestant denomination in the world. It was under a soteriology that believes that God loves uh, everyone. Jesus died for everyone. He genuinely desires the salvation of everyone and anyone can be saved. Um, and the concept and idea of once saved, always saved. I don't like that vernacular, but that's usually what it's referred to as is that it, once you, once you are truly redeemed, once you're truly indwelled by the Holy Spirit, uh, nothing can remove you. Nothing will remove you from that, that relationship or a true genuine faith will result in a, a persevering kind of faith. These are doctrines that traditionally my grandparents, my great-grandparents would have held to as a part of the Southern Baptist. Now, I recognize not everybody is a Southern Baptist. And so uh, we we coined the term provisionism just simply to say that it is very similar to the traditional Southern Baptist perspective um, with regard to uh, the soteriological stance that we hold to. But if, if you want to call it a traditional, I, I would really think it's more traditional in the sense that it's it was held to at least very similar uh, to the first 400 years of the Christian church. Uh, now, that could be debated and argued at different points, but I, I think what we hold to with regard to anthropology, the nature of man from birth, um, and, and those kinds of issues are very similar to what we see in the first 400 years of the Christian church. Uh, and so, Tradition, sometimes the word tradition can be confusing because whose tradition, you know, are you talking about? And even in the Southern Baptist tradition, the earliest uh, Southern Baptist forefathers, if you will, back in the Civil War times when when uh, Southern Baptists were first being founded, uh, many of them were more Calvinistic. And so sometimes the Calvinists would cry foul and saying, you can't call yourself a traditionalist. We're the tradition, you know, of the Southern Baptist. And so I didn't like to get into all those debates. And so I just said, you know what? I, I really want to focus on God's provision. Uh, yes, we're sinners, but God provides for sinners. Yes, we're lost, dead in sins. Yes, we're we're broken. Yes, we're in bondage to sin. All those things you say about how bad people are. Yes, we agree. But God provides for those people in that need, and he provides in a sufficient way. In other words, there's no one who perishes for a lack of atonement. There's no one who perishes because God rejected them before they were born. There's nobody who perishes because Jesus didn't die for their sins. Uh, no one perishes because uh, of a lack of God's grace or because God didn't give them uh, the miracle of faith so that they could believe. Um, we just don't. We just don't think any of those things are taught in Scripture. We think that Jesus really did die for everybody and that anyone can be saved. 
So I just want to make sure I clarify what would be, so we know that Calvinism has like the tulip, right? And that's sort of their core tenets. So for provisionism, what would be like the core beliefs? Sure. Um, we, we do have an acrostic of our own that we created kind of an answer to TULIP uh, called PROVIDE. We use the word PROVIDE uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, the P stands for people sin, which separates us from fellowship with God. So we do agree with the Calvinist. Everyone does sin and fall short of God's glory. Uh, but we're still responsible, meaning we're still able to respond to the gospel calling us to repentance and faith. So just because you're a sinner that's dead in sin doesn't mean you can't respond to the life-giving truth on our view. So, yes, people sin, but people are still responsible. They're able to respond to the gospel. Open door is that anyone can enter by faith. In other words, the door is open to every single individual. God doesn't close the door before you're ever born to some of you who are reprobates or non-elect. That, that doesn't exist on our position the, open, the door is open to anybody, whosoever will, so to speak. Uh, vicarious atonement is the concept and idea that uh, God provides a way for anyone to be saved. In other words, the atonement is, is uh, available for all, just like the serpent lifted in the desert is for anyone to look to it for healing. So too, Christ was lifted up so that anyone can look to him for healing. And so it's a, an atonement provided for all people. Illuminating grace, instead of irresistible grace, we would say illuminating grace, which means that the, the light has appeared to all men um, and therefore all are responsible uh, to, to respond either by suppressing that light, suppressing the truth or accepting the truth. But the grace of God is illuminating and therefore we can see and thus are responsible for what we see. We're responsible for the revelation, the light of his illuminating grace. D of uh, the provide stands for destroyed. Uh, you're destroyed ultimately for unbelief uh, in resisting the Holy Spirit. Like Paul says, uh, they perish because they refuse to love the truth so as to be saved. They don't perish because God refused them before they were born or because they were predestined to eternal damnation or anything like that. They're destroyed because they refuse the free offer of God's grace. Um, and then eternal security is, as we've already mentioned, uh, that true believers, those who have truly trusted in, in, in God, the fruit of that faith will be enduring and everlasting. Thank you for that answer. Um, and before we move in, I just want to make sure that we're all on the same page. Would you agree that exposition and expository teaching and preaching is essential for any pastor or people who call themselves teachers of the Christian faith? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, the word is inerrant. Uh, it is infallible. It is God-breathed. It is profitable for rebu rebuke, correcting, and training in righteousness. Uh, and therefore, it is our authority. And when we walk through the text, we need to uh, not just give commentary based upon what we think it means. Uh, we need to look at the original author's intentions. We need to look at the context, the historical context of what they were talking about and who they were talking to. Uh, understanding what they were meaning in the original context is important to apply it rightly to us in our context. And so all those things are valuable for teaching and training in righteousness. Of course. And I think um, thus far, any Calvinist or Arminian would say amen to everything you've said so far. Um, yes. With that, any Calvinist would take well, any serious Calvinist or any believer, for that matter, would take exposition very seriously. A Calvinist, though, would take Romans 9, Ephesians 1, John 6, and use it as an expositional framework, sort of a core foundational group of passages to support their view. Um, what passages do you use typically to, to support your view? 
Yeah, ironically, I would use all those passages too, because um, oftentimes what people will do will, whenever somebody brings up Romans nine, for example, they'll say, "Oh, well, what about John three sixteen? You know, for whosoever will, whosoever will," and you become a volleying kind of match of of passages, as if the passages passages don't agree with each other. And of course, anybody who believes in in true biblical inerrancy and the authority of God's word believes that scriptures don't contradict scripture. And so the best way to approach the disagreements that we have is not to just cite other texts that we think seem to disagree with the text that's been quoted, but instead demonstrate how in the original text that's being quoted, like Romans 9, uh, one of my books is written specifically covering that topic, in, in fact, uh, with regard to what does Paul mean in Romans 9, so as to demonstrate that Calvinism doesn't really have an apologetic passage because Romans 9 is the central apologetic passage for the claims of double predestination and reprobation and the concepts that Calvinists often insist are taught throughout Scripture. Romans 9 is their uh, major stomping grounds for that apologetic. So if you can demonstrate uh, using good hermeneutical principles and exegetical commentary how Paul was not defending uh, reprobation and double predestination, then you've ultimately destroyed Calvinism's only apologetic. Uh, and so oftentimes in order to demonstrate my sociology, I'll go to the exact same text that my Calvinist friends do in order to demonstrate how they have misread those texts to come to their conclusions. Um, but of course, there are other texts in scripture uh, that that obviously clearly, uh, you know, delineate the things that we hold and value with regard to God's provision, his desire. Uh, I think of obviously 1 Timothy 2, which talks about God's desire for all to be saved. He's a ransom for all. Second uh, Peter 3, 9, uh, the desire for all to be saved. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. I think of Ezekiel 18, uh, where he talks about to uh, to turn from your evil, to get a new heart, uh, to, to I, I desire the, that no one perish, but all to come to repentance. Um, repent and live. Uh, and, and I could go on and on. I mean, there are dozens upon, in fact, that that provide acrostic that I, I went through earlier on our About uh, website on the About Our Beliefs. It has five or six verses beside each one of those points, all of which I think were, will support our findings with regard to those sociological points. And of course, Calvinists have those those texts as well. And, and, and I think we need to be willing as non-Calvinists to go through those texts with them and to demonstrate to them why we think that their conclusions exegetically are wrong. So just to follow up what you're saying, the, the passages that you use talk about the desires of God. So are you saying that will and desire uh, are exactly the same? Just because I want something, does that mean that it automatically wills it? Well, there there are obviously correlations between the will of God or the desire of God, um, and and God may will that I, for example, uh, do not lie. That that may be a will that He has, but He also has willed for me to have a free will. In other words, He has given me the freedom to make a decision. So when I lie, I'm not. As A.W. Tozer, I think, rightly says, when I sin, I'm not countervailing the sovereignty of God because he didn't sovereignly choose which choice I'll make. He sovereignly chose that I would make a choice and that, that, that choice would be free. And so God in his will is to give us free will. Uh, and in so doing, 
he gives us the ability to make mistakes, even though the, that's not his desire. His desire is that we don't sin, but obviously we still do sin. Why? Because he's given us the ability to make free yeah. choices. And, 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 that, and that's intuitive, even with your own children. Uh, you could uh, manhandle them day in and day out, 24 hours a day, if you wanted to, to keep them to, from doing anything wrong. But by granting them the freedom to make their own you know, autonomous choices and separate from you in their own bedrooms or do their own things, in that sense, you are willing for them to have a... a some autonomy and choice limited as it may be uh, for themselves. And in doing so, you're granting them that uh, capacity to make mistakes. So if, if your desire is to, to, for your children to do something and they choose not to do that, you're saying that the desire and the will kind of go hand in hand because both of them were free. So your desire was for them to do well, to do well. And then you, you, you know, they, they did well, but you're, you're, you're giving them complete control over everything they, that they do. So desire and will are the same because the passages that you, you described earlier are talking about God's desire, not God's will. So if we're talking about God's will, are they tied into each other? So they are. Yeah. When I mean, give the example of the sense of which I desire for my all four of my children to go to college, um, but I also have made the decision that they're going to make that decision for themselves. And so they may choose not to go to college, which is against my desire, but because I have allowed them to make that choice, um, then in that sense, they're, they're free uh, to make those decisions. So they're not doing what I would prefer for them to do, but um, they are, the, uh, but they are still disappointing me in the sense that they're not doing something that I want. Um, and so in the same way, God, and it's a limited freedom. It's not complete autonomy. Obviously, uh, we are confined to the limitations of our physical reality and our world, uh, our moral abilities. I mean, for example, I may desire to jump out of this window and fly to New York with my arms, but that's not going to happen because I don't have the physical ability to do that. Now, some people who are crazy might try to do that and die trying, but it's not it's it's not a will issue it's an ability issue and so they're 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 willing they want to do that but they're not physically capable of doing that and so there are limitations to the, the man's freedom of the will a free will as my my colleague uh, dr pritchett likes to say is not free will is not a superpower it doesn't thwart god um, it's, it's not as if God's, uh, you know, wringing his hands going, oh, I don't know what men are going to do next. And I just don't know. Oh, no. You know, and like he's a weak namby pamby God because he's happened to give us the ability to make choices within the confines of uh, our finite reality. Um, but at the same time, I think our choices are genuine, meaning that I, I believe that we could do otherwise. So if I sinned today, uh, if I lied today, I could have refrained from lying today. And that is just what is referred to as contra-causal free will or libertarian free will, the ability to do otherwise. I'm not decreed to lie by God. God didn't sovereignly and unchangeably decree that I lie uh, if I lied. And so th that's maybe a difference. Some of the philosophical nuances between different forms of Calvinism and uh, other positions philosophically that can get kind of hairy and deep into the weeds. So why don't we get into that stuff? Mark, why don't you ask the next question? Yeah, I don't know about you guys. I'm always surprised by just how much evidence is on both sides, how much support there is for each view. Uh, so the next thing we want to go to is um, we want to look at church history and ask, you know, where does church history stand on this debate? Did early church fathers and influential leaders of the church throughout history have traditionalist beliefs? 
Well, I, I, I believe Ken Wilson, uh, who is an orthopedic hand surgeon, but he, on his spare time, he's also an Oxford graduate in theology. I mean, he has a, two degrees, and so he's one of those really, really smart, uber smart kind of fellows that uh, knows like six languages or something like that. He's crazy smart. But he wrote uh, his dissertation there in Oxford on uh, Augustinian uh, teachings and doctrines and his shift from free will and a free will theology to more of a deterministic philosophy, uh, which um, he believes, and I think he he rightly concludes based upon his research that he presents, that uh, Augustine kind of swung back towards a more Gnostic form of philosophical reasoning with regard to uh, how God works in relation to man. Um, and, and he was a Manichaean Gnostic for a good 10 years uh, prior to converting into Christianity. Um, and he did teach on libertarian free will and taught just like the rest of the early church was teaching with regard to man's freedom of choice uh, until he got into a debate with Pelagius. And um, during a debate, as, as I can attest to, sometimes during debates, you tend to, in an in effort to really defend your position, sometimes you can swing too far into the logical consistencies of that position. And I believe that's what and, and Ken Wilson argues, I think, rightly, that that's what Augustine ended up doing is he ended up swinging too far into more of a deterministic uh, way of, of, of teaching with regard to uh, God and his sovereign ways of working with finite creatures. And he's the first, even by many Calvinists' uh, historians' own admission, he's the first uh, church father or first writer that we are aware of that taught a more Calvinistic, if you will, obviously that's anachronistic, but he taught a more Calvinistic soteriological perspective, even though it's far from Calvinism as we know it today, because even Augustine believed you could lose your salvation, for example, and he believed in baptismal regeneration of infants. I mean, he he's a far cry from, you know, a five-point tulip Calvinist that we would know today, like John Piper. But he he was the first in Christian history that anybody's aware of to really teach the kinds of things like total inability from birth, unconditional election of individuals for effectual salvation. Um, and we don't even see anything about limited atonement until probably God's chalk uh, several centuries later. So uh, there, there's there's much evidence there, even from Calvinistic sources. In other words, even reformers, Calvin himself even admits that Augustine's the only one who really supports these kinds of teachings and doctrines uh, in the first five to 600 years of the ch Christian church. So, so we've been talking about Calvinism a lot today. Um, obviously, they, your beliefs in Calvinism go hand in hand because they deal with the same topic. Um, so I, I wanted to ask you what your major points of contention are with Calvinism. Where would provisionism really kind of differentiate itself from Calvinism? Well, I, I agree with R.C. Sproul, who is a well-known you know, Calvinistic scholar who's recently gone on to be with the Lord, but... Um, I agree that the T is the foundational point of the whole sociological systematic, um, which is one of the reasons I put, I put a lot of emphasis on the T, which is uh, in reference to total depravity. Now, a lot of Baptists think that they agree with Calvinists on total depravity because they think that depravity just simply means that men are sinful and fallen. And if that's all that Calvinists meant by depravity, then I think we would be in full agreement with them. But that's not what Calvinists believe with regard to depravity. What they are saying when they say totally depraved is that not only are we sinful and in bondage to sin, but we can't confess that fact, even in light of the gospel, unless God has unconditionally elected us before we were born and irresistibly graced us, or what some would refer to as pre-faith regeneration. In other words, you are born in a condition you can't even accept and believe the Bible 
in the scriptures and the gospel, unless he picked you before you were born and irresistibly graces you with this. Irresistible means it's effectual. In other words, if he picked you, he will change your nature. He'll change your heart irresistibly. He's not dragging you against your will. He's changing your will to make you want to believe and to, to follow him. Uh, and so that's the Calvinistic systematic. And I, I just disagree with that. I don't believe that we're born unable to respond positively to the gospel appeal. I don't believe that we're born in a fallen condition and thus therefore unable to uh, respond positively to God's appeal to be reconciled from that fallen condition. Uh, I, I believe that we re, we remain in the Imago Dei, the image of God. We have a conscience that's able to judge right from wrong. And therefore we can tell the difference between the false claims of the Quran and the true claims of the scripture because the scripture is true, it's right. I think it resonates with our uh, the, 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 the soul that God created us with, the ability to discern right from wrong. Our consciences bear witness which what's right and what's wrong. Now that conscience can become seared. We can become hardened. We can become calloused, but we're not born that way. And that's ultimately essentially what the Calvinist T is teaching, that we're born unable to see spiritually, hear spiritually, understand spiritually, and turn spiritually. We're dead, corpse-like dead spiritually in that sense. And so that we can't see, hear, turn, and understand. But the Bible seems to indicate in many passages that we can go through, if you want to take the time to do that, um, that we aren't born that way, that we become that way if we resist the truth. And if we resist the truth long enough, eventually we can grow hardened and calloused and our conscience become seared eventually to the point of no return even to where God can cut us off from revelation and say, okay, I've held out my hands to you all day long, but I'm not gonna contend with man forever. And, and I'll let him go his own way. Now, there may still be a hope for him to return uh, from his pigsty moment, so to speak, uh, to return or be provoked to envy, as Romans 11 speaks about with the hardened Israelites. He, he hopes that his ministry to the, the Gentiles will provoke them to envy. Well, he's talking about hardened Israelites there. So I don't think he's fully given up hope on anyone until obviously they reach the, the point of judgment. But um, but ho hopefully that answers the question is, with regard to what our major contention is. I think the T is the foundational error that Calvinists make with regard to the, the anthropology, the nature of man. Yes, men are sinful or in bondage to sin, but even people in bondage and sinful and all those things that Calvinists say about how bad men are, they're still able to respond positively or negatively to the gospel. So I, I just wanna clarify something uh, really quickly, just so people can really have a full understanding of your belief. Um, you said that we aren't born this way, that we become this way. Does that mean we become sinful? Does that, are you rejecting original sin or are you trying to say something else? I just want to clarify that for others that are listening. Sure. Yeah. There's a difference between talking about somebody being under sin and the curse of sin versus being hardened and calloused to the truth that's calling them to repentance. There's a, there's a difference between those two categories. And so I can agree uh, with some concepts of the original sin doctrine with regard to us being born under the fall of sin. We're in a, a fallen world with fallen natures, if you will, where we're, we're uh, naturally inclined to be selfish and inclined towards uh, our own selfish ways, all those kinds of things. Uh, I do contend with the concept and idea that we're guilty from birth because of what Adam did. I think there's too many passages of scripture that don't uh, uh, teach that we're born guilty for our parents or grandparents' sin. Um, but instead, 
Adam Harwood uses, I think, a really good analogy. He has a great book on the spiritual condition of infants that I highly recommend and several articles online if you wanted to look it up for free versions of his position. But he makes a really strong case for this with regard to how we don't have imputed guilt because of what Adam did, but we have uh, we have the curse of sin on our on our on our lives, just like the the world uh, creation has a curse of sin. And the reason we have mosquitoes and thorns and thistles and all you know, childbearing pain and all the kinds of things that we have is because we live in a fallen world and therefore we're in that fallen world and we have uh, devastating effects upon us. And if left to ourselves, if left alone, there would be absolutely no hope for anything good from us. But God doesn't leave anyone on their own. He, he intervenes. That's what the illuminating light of God's grace is all about, that he, his light comes and shines to all men. He makes himself abundantly known that all are without excuse because of his light and his revelation. And so um, hopefully that answers the question. Um, I, I know there's some nuances there with regard to the different forms of original sin, but there's a huge distinction, I believe, between the sinfulness of man and the hardness of one's heart in that sin. Uh, in other words, it's almost like an addict. Uh, you can be an addict. Uh, you could be addicted to alcohol, for example just like sinners are addicted to sin. But just because one is addicted to alcohol doesn't mean they can't confess their addiction and check into a rehab facility when they're confronted by their family. Um, so even an addict who's someone who's addicted to sin can still confess their addiction and accept the help when it's offered by the Father. And so th that's the distinction I'm drawing is that the Calvinist seems to be saying that because we're addicted to sin, therefore we can't confess that fact and trust in the one offering uh, freedom from our addiction, and I don't find that anywhere established in the Bible. Well, do you do you view salvation as a miracle? Of course, yes. Yes. So I'm not debating you here. I want to make that clear. Well, I'd be I do, fine if you did. <laughs> I do have um, from my own from my own understanding, and I think it's important for for anyone to understand these. Right. So we are. The Bible describes us as as filthy rags before God prior to our. Uh, salvation, our conversion, right? So we are stained with sin, right? Let's just paint a perfect visual here. Stained with sin. And we won't talk about the differences of how we get there, but somehow the miracle of salvation comes upon our lives. And you agree that it's a miracle. Um, so there are, there are no miracles that I know of, unless you can educate me otherwise, that we are in control over. So if I were walking across the street and a car was coming to, you know, hit me and kill me and God magically lifted me and, and spared me from that, from that time, it was completely out of my control. It was something that God completely ordained and, and orchestrated all on his own because that's what miracles are. So if we, we established that salvation is a miracle and we were stained prior to our conversion and that God had to do the miracle how is it that we remove God's sovereignty from that transaction and we say that it's all up to us? That's now it's all our choice. If there's no other miracle, that's our, our choice. Well, I said salvation's a miracle. I didn't say belief in the gospel's a miracle. Uh, and that's the conflation that oftentimes Calvinists will make is that because salvation itself, uh, a sinner who repents being redeemed, that is salvation. That's a miracle. Doesn't mean that that's the same as the, the responsibility you have with regard to the gospel. So it's not a miracle to believe truth. Um, in, anybody can believe truth uh, anybody, and everybody should believe truth. The miracle is what God does for those who believe his truth. 
And so I, I use the prodigal son as just an analogy. I don't necessarily think that this was the point of the analogy, but I just use it as a story to illustrate what I'm saying is that um, when, when the son was returning from his pigsty, there's nothing miraculous about that. He's coming back to beg for a job as a slave. Um, there, there's nothing supernatural about his choice to do that. Um, but what's gracious and what salvation is being, uh, uh, I think, illustrated is the goodness of the father who doesn't have to receive him. Uh, he hasn't earned anything. He hasn't merited what he's about to get when he gets home. The father graciously and, and monergistically, if you will, that's a word that's often used in this is because it's monergism. It's God and God alone. And that's oftentimes the conflating of the Calvinist in the argument is they're conflating man's choice to repent and to come home with God's choice to receive him and restore him when he gets there. Those are two separate choices. And sometimes they'll conflate it into one and call it all salvation, like it's a, like a, a big pie. And say, this is the salvation pie, which includes both man's choice and God's choice. And that's just one pie. And so what percentage do you want to give man credit for? And what percentage do you want to give God credit for? And they've made this into this, and they, they try to make it a debate about what percentage are you giving God credit for something? And I'm saying, no, no, there's two completely different pies. Um, man is 100% responsible for his sin and his choice to repent of it. God is 100% responsible for what he does with those who do so. He does, he's not obligated to save you because you repent and believe. He doesn't have to send Jesus to die for believers. He doesn't have to provide atonement for anyone. He chooses to give the golden ring. He chooses to kill the folded calf. And that is 100% gracious and from the Father alone. But that doesn't change the fact that you're 100% responsible for the sin you committed. And you're 100% responsible for owning up to it. And humbly, humbling yourself, that's what humiliation, the word, same sure. word comes from that, where you humble yourself, tuck yourself, your, your tail between your legs, so to speak, and say, I, I throw myself at your mercy, uh, Father. I, 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 I sinned against you, um, and that is your responsibility 100%. I totally agree with that. Uh, just to follow up, we made a distinction now between you and Calvinism. What about Arminianism? What are the differences there? Um, well, the T, again, can be one of the major differences um, because Calvin, uh, excuse me, um, you know, John Calvin was in Geneva and Arminius was actually a disciple of Geneva, of John Calvin. Uh, and he, he questioned many of the doctrines of uh, Calvin, one of them being the, 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 the tulip, the five points of the remonstrance. And so there was some, some debate over how we deal with the depravity of man and uh you know, um, Arminius, Jacobus Arminius, actually sided with Calvinists uh, with regard to man being unable to respond positively to the gospel. But the way he answered it, instead of the way I answer it, which is that we don't lose that ability because of the fall, there's nothing in the Bible that I can find anyway that says we've lost our ability to respond to, to the gospel or to God's word, for that matter. I mean, when God appears to the uh, Adam and Eve after they've sinned in the garden, it, it doesn't there's nothing that indicates that God has to do some ontological changing of their nature for them to be able to have a conversation with him. I, I, I don't know why uh, philosophically we've kind of put this baggage onto the text, but this this concept of prevenient grace, which by the way, prevenient grace just means grace that's necessary that comes before. And so if that's all you mean by prevenient grace, I, I affirm the need for grace. Uh, I, I, you know, I, 
obviously you need the incarnation. You need uh, the the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. You need the Holy Spirit bringing conviction to the world, the gospel coming. All of that's prevenient working of grace. What what I don't agree with with regard to classical Arminianism is this. What Roger Olson, for example, who's a well-known you know modern-day Arminian scholar, who's a friend of mine, by the way, I just disagree with his concept of partial regeneration. That God has to partially regenerate you and give you a free will back so that you can respond to the gospel. That seems like philosophical and unnecessary theological baggage that's just been added to the text. Um, And so I I reject the concept of total inability, that people are born because of the fall and divine decree, I guess, that everybody's just born without this capacity, moral capacity to respond positively to his own appeals to be reconciled from their fallen condition. Unless he magically or mystically, or I know that sounds derogatory to put it that way, but that's it's what it comes across as, like he has to somehow give you something that you weren't born with, and that is the capacity to understand and respond to truth. And again, I don't, I don't find that established anywhere in the Bible. Uh, there's a recent episode I just had um, on a fellow podcast with Brian Abishano, uh, the the president of the Society of Evangelical Armenians, where we kind of go through these nuances and kind of talk through these things for those that might be interested. You can go listen to that. But it's cutting it's cutting things pretty thin. It's getting into the weeds, obviously, because it's really getting down to the the means by which God's grace is shown. Uh, I believe the gospel is a means of prevenient grace, and it's sufficient for anyone who hears it to respond to it. Um, and there doesn't need to be any kind of supernatural, miraculous change of nature to cause you to have your ability to make choices again. Um, again, that, that, that's one issue that I have with some, not all, but some Armenians with regard to uh, the sociological differences. And the second one could be on the, the issue of perseverance. However, I, I've talked to some Armenians that actually do believe in perseverance or eternal security. Uh, so that may not be a, a, a sticking point. Even Arminius himself just uh kind of punted to mystery on that point. He never took a hard stand uh, with regard to apostasy or eternal security. And so that that is an open-handed issue, I think, for for even Arminians, uh, for the most part, from what I can understand. I'm actually glad you said open-handed. So with the differences between Calvinism, Arminianism, Provisionism, um, are, are they all brothers and sisters in Christ? Are they all saved that these secondary issues? Can you say my brother in Christ? Or are there some that are at risk of not being saved because of the differences. Right. If someone professes faith in Christ and and I have to take them at their word for that, I can't see their hearts. Uh, then I then I, there's nothing there's nothing about what I believe that would make me think that someone's not a Christian because they affirm tulip, for example, or they they disagree with me re, with regard to uh, the T of total inability. Um, or even, for that matter, I mean, even a more controversial topic with regard to God's knowledge, how omniscience works with the dynamic omniscience and open theism and things like that. I, I, I disagree with open theists, but I don't cast them out of the kingdom like some people do, because I think it's a philosophical issue that um, I think God's grace covers our different philo- philosophical nuances of how God's knowledge and his interactions with finite creatures work. Uh, I think God's grace is bigger than that stuff. Um, and so I, I don't I don't go around casting people out of the kingdom because they have nuanced differences on these sociological issues. Yeah, well, thanks for giving us this overview of uh, traditionalism, or we were saying provisionism. Um, so if other people want to learn more about you, doctor, where can they go? Sure, soteriology, 
Soteriology101.com is the, our main website. Uh, of course, I have a YouTube channel as well as a podcast where you could find uh, by that same search, Soteriology101, um, or even my name, Leighton Flowers. You could probably Google that. You might get a lot of articles from my uh, Calvinist interlocutors calling me all kinds <laughs> of names and uh, heretic and all those kinds of things and casting me out of the kingdom <laughs> along with your Google searches. But uh, nevertheless, you can find some resources there. I've got a couple of books out. Uh, the Potter's Promise is the one that goes through the major proof texts that y'all mentioned earlier with regard to Ephesians 1, John 6, and especially Romans 9. So the Potter's Promise you can find on Amazon. Uh, there's an audio version of that too for those that like to listen to it. Uh, and then uh, more recently, I wrote uh, God's, uh, you know, Potter's Promise is the first book. God's Provision for All is the second book. Uh, and it's more of a positive presentation. It doesn't mention Calvinism even in the bulk of the book, but it's just a positive presentation of what provisionism stands for and what we believe. Awesome. We really appreciate it. It's an honor to have you on. We really respect all the work that you do. You're constantly putting out content uh, on your subject. And uh, you've done a lot of work, and we really appreciate you coming on with us. It was my pleasure, guys. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it.